Hello and welcome to the Real Life Law Podcast. I'm your host, Legia Miller, a real-life lawyer on a mission to demystify the law and how it affects your everyday life. Every Monday and Friday, I live stream over on my YouTube channel, and then I convert that into a podcast for you, because I get that you're a busy person on the go. We cover pop culture and current events and the laws that shape your everyday life. So thank you so much for joining. If you find this podcast informational or entertaining, please consider giving it a review. Every review helps this podcast grow and is greatly appreciated. Now on with the content. So the Supreme Court term starts on October 4th. Um, they're hearing a bunch of different cases. I am not going to go over all of them because there are so many. I have linked down below to a really helpful SCOTUS website called Oye, O-Y-E-Z. If you are ever curious about oral arguments for pretty much any Supreme Court case ever, uh, they have that. They have transcripts, they have recordings, and then they also have the upcoming term and what the cases are and a brief overview of, uh, you know, what to expect coming up. So go to that website if you want to learn more. I'm going to be highlighting 10 different cases today, all of which will probably come up in the news the way that it works is they they accept certain cases. They don't accept everyone that applies to them for review because they simply could not. They wouldn't have the time. Um, but they apply or they pick a certain number of cases, usually ones that there's a circuit split of some sort. There's some sort of issue of kind of national importance that they feel called upon to make a decision. Some of them are really technical and that's why I'm not covering them here because they have to do with like a really specific statute or like a really niche area of procedure or something that's like not gonna have national implications. I've filtered those out. So I will be covering the ones that have the potential to have more national implications or implications for like rights of minorities and things like that. I've picked 10, you could see them all at the link down below. And then after they accept these, they uh, schedule them for oral, argu oral arguments, which start October 4th and go, right now they're scheduled go, to go through December 1st, but they haven't scheduled some of them. So it will continue beyond that. And then after they hear the oral argument, they issue a decision. And it's usually not clear when the decision is gonna come out. They need to deliberate, they need to write it. It takes a while. So these are, so I've, I've organized them by date of oral argument. Um, we don't know when exactly the actual decisions are gonna come out yet, but we at least know when the oral arguments will happen. So um, I'm just gonna jump right in to these cases. A reminder, there's 10 of them that I'm going over. I did not read the full briefs and docket of all 10 of these. The big ones, I'm thinking about doing like a whole separate video for them, like after oral arguments or after we get the decision to kind of help analyze what's going on with that. Um, but as of right now, I'm going to be giving uh, an overview of these 10 different cases. And I will try to answer as many questions as you have at the end based on my limited knowledge of each individual case. Sound good? All right. Uh, so keep your questions to the end, but a reminder that super chats and super stickers are enabled. Any money spent goes towards keeping the lights on in here and allowing me to bring this information to you and to buy pet food for this beautiful pup. Um, she's in a pair of, uh, she's got a diaper on because someone just got a period. Uh, so, you know, period panty fund for the dog, if you're feeling generous. <laughs> 
Okay, um, also, if you're new here, hi, my name is Lija. I'm a real life lawyer on a mission to demystify the law and how it affects your everyday life. Um, that being said, I may be a lawyer, but I'm not your lawyer. Nothing that I say should ever be construed as legal advice. And you should always seek the advice of a licensed attorney before making any legal decisions, all right? So I'm going to jump right in to, to this, okay. So our first, the first one I'm gonna cover, so the, the term starts on October 4th, but the first one I'm gonna cover is actually one that is being argued on October 12th. Um, it is called Cameron v. EMW Women's Surgical Center. There we go. Um, all right, so this is out of Kentucky. And it is kind of a technicality, but it's about abortion. So I figured I'd throw it in because cases about abortion, um, they always have some sort of national coverage. Though there's another case about abortion that'll be argued later that I'm gonna cover, but this one is also on the docket. So we have there's a thing called a DNE, a dilation and extraction. It's the primary form of conducting an abortion that happens in the second trimester. And it's like 95% of second trimester abortions are done via a DNE. And those second trimester abortions, I'll remind you, are still constitutionally protected. Roe v. Wade is still, still a good law despite Texas's legislative gymnastics with SBA. Check out my videos on that um, after this live stream if you are interested. But in Kentucky, they passed a law it's another one of these that's trying to kind of chip away at the constitutionally protected right to have an abortion prior to fetal viability. Um, and this law says that the person getting an abortion has to undergo a separate procedure before the DNE to fully end the fetal life before the DNE occurs. So the only, there's one abortion clinic in all of Kentucky and they have sued saying that the law isn't constitutional because it creates an undue burden for the person seeking an abortion, like making them get an entire second procedure before getting the abortion when it's not medically necessary. They're saying that's an undue burden. So the district court and the circuit courts both agreed that the law was unconstitutional and they invalidated it. However, now the Kentucky Attorney General, Daniel Cameron, has asked the Sixth Circuit whether he can step in because the Attorney General is considered the defender of the laws. Um, and uh, so he's saying like, I'm defender of the laws, so I'd like to step in and, and, and be the person that, that uh, represents this law to try to defend it. And the Sixth Circuit was like, nah, like that ship has sailed, like what? Anyway, so now it's appealed up to the Supreme Court. So the question before the Supreme Court is not actually about abortion, but it's about whether the Attorney General can intervene in this kind of random technical way. But if the Supreme Court says yes, yes, you can intervene, um, then it could mean that there's another shot at getting this Kentucky law enforced. Kind of seems like a long shot, but it is kind of weirdly procedural, so I'm not entirely sure how the court will rule on this one. All right, so that's Cameron v. EMW Women's Surgical Center. Same day, October 12th, they're gonna hear a case called Thompson v. Clark. This one on its surface feels also really technical and procedural, but it could have some widespread implications for communities of color, especially due to the fact that they experience higher rates of being stopped, frisked, taken into custody, determined that there was actually no cause to have arrested them in the first place and then released 
because they're not actually, there was no probable cause to begin with. Um, so the circuits are split, meaning that the second circuit, which includes New York, holds one way, but the 11th circuit, which includes places like Florida, holds another. Um, and that's often when a, the Supreme Court will step in and try to kind of make one blanket rule for the whole country. Um, so the issue is this. When someone gets arrested or charged with a crime unjustly, like without probable cause or due to police or prosecutorial misconduct, that person then has the right to sue law enforcement in federal court for a civil rights violation. It's a protection for the wrongly accused. Um, the catch is they can't have been found guilty of the thing that they are claiming they were wrongfully accused of, right? And that makes sense because if they're being found guilty of something by like a jury of their peers and then they're turning around and saying it was a prosecutorial misconduct or something to have brought it in the first place, it's like, well, but you did it, you know? So it's a little, it's a little iffy, but basically in order to bring a, a case, they have to have... Um, uh, favorable termination is what it's called. Their case has to have ended in a way that was favorable to them. However, in the Second Circuit, which again is home to New York City, the stop and frisk capital of the world, though <laughs> stop and frisk is rampant in communities of color nationwide, but it, it was perfected on the streets of New York City. The Second Circuit, which controls New York City, uh, requires that the person trying to sue for violations of their civil rights, they have to prove that the proceeding against them ended in a manner that affirmatively proved their innocence um, in order to then sue for a civil rights violation, which at first seems to make sense. Like, okay, they're innocent, so it's more likely that their civil rights were violated. However, a lot of times what happens is that a prosecutor will realize like, oh, we don't actually have probable cause uh, to have arrested this person or like there's something off here and they'll just drop the charges. Dropped charges don't affirmatively establish innocence. You know what I mean? But in the 11th circuit, the standard is just that the case had to have ended in a manner not inconsistent with the charged person's innocence. Meaning like if a prosecutor just drops the charges, that generally indicates like they don't wanna pursue charges because the person might be innocent. It doesn't prove they're innocent, but it also, is not a ruling of guilty. So it generally tends, it's not inconsistent with the possibility that the person is innocent. You see how the bar is higher in New York for someone to bring a civil rights case than in the 11th circuit? So the Supreme Court is going to rule on whether the favorable termination requirement is that the person had to be found innocent in order to bring a civil rights abuse allegation or whether the underlying case had to just not have found the person to be guilty in any way. It's kind of a, a technical difference of a couple words, but it could have a huge impact on communities of color since they are the ones that experience these types of injustices more frequently. So I wanted to highlight it. That was a little technical. We can, we can suss out any questions you might have about that one um, if you'd like, but favorable, favorable termination is going to be determined October 12th in Thompson v. Clark. All right, the next day, October 13th, they're gonna hear oral arguments in United States v. Sarnayev. God, I knew I was gonna mess that up. U.S. v. Sarnayev, recognize that name? It's the Boston Marathon bomber. His case is still going through the court system. A reminder, it happened eight years ago. So after a very public trial in Boston, Sarnayev was sentenced to death for his role in the uh, Boston Marathon bombings. However, that was then appealed. And the First Circuit Court of Appeals, so the court above the trial court, they threw out the death sentence, saying that the trial court made an error when it failed to question potential jurors about the media coverage that they saw leading up to the trial. So they didn't ask jurors about like, what have you been watching? 
you know, as this has been unfolding. The First Circuit also said that the trial court made an error when it refused to allow evidence during the sentencing phase of Sarnayev's brother and his past, his criminal past. Remember, his brother was also involved, but he died in like this shocking shootout that played out on live television in suburban Boston. I was living in Peru at the time and I was just like clinging to CNN, like watching it unfold. It was so unreal. Anyway, uh, the court during the sentencing phase, which is like a mini trial that happens after the main trial to determine whether or not a death sentence should be applied. The court didn't allow into evidence during that sentencing trial, the evidence of Sarnayev's brother and the fact that he had been involved in a triple murder related to claimed jihad a few years earlier. Anyway, so the Supreme Court is being asked to determine whether the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit, so the, the court that threw it out, whether they made an error in vacating the death sentence. So currently he does not have a death sentence because the First Circuit overthrew that. So the Supreme Court's going to see whether or not that was the correct move. Um, so they're going to look at the district court's failure to ask pr prospective jurors about a specific accounting of the pre-trial media coverage they had seen or read, and also to, to address whether it's exclusion of evidence at the sentencing phase about Sarnayev's brother, um, whether that was proper. So these are like technical to the case, but it's an important case, not only because this guy was involved in like a national tragedy, but also because it implicates the protections put in place for a criminal defendant and their right to a fair trial in the face of national and international media coverage, which is a huge question, especially with the invention of the internet and social media and how much that changes the equation when it comes to finding a neutral or unbiased jury of your peers. Like, is that even possible? How do we determine that? Do we need to be questioning people about their biases based on the media coverage that they have seen up to the trial? And a lot of times people are asking that question already of potential jurors, like what have you seen in the media? But this is going to decide whether it's like a constitutionally protected thing, whether they you have to question them about that. Um, the, the ACLU and the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, along with the Rutherford Institute, have filed an amicus brief, which is like, um, and they, they filed the amicus brief in support of Sarnayev and his right to have the, specifically the mitigating evidence about his brother submitted during his sentencing, sentencing phase, basically because they're trying to say like, he was kind of acting under the influence of his brother. This should be mitigating evidence to kind of weigh against uh, sentencing him to death. Um, and the ACLU and the other parties, um, are supporting him, um, because, you know, they are, it, it is, a theoretically a protected right in, that we have in place in this country that the accused, um, you know, that the, 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 it's, we want to protect the rights of the accused in this country. In theory, that doesn't always happen, but in theory we do. And so that's why the ACLU is in, is, filing this in support of Sarnayev, even though that like seems counterintuitive because we're like, he bombed us. It was like really bad. Why are we trying to protect him? Because in this country, we want to protect the accused because we don't want to, uh, you know, give, punish people in a way that is like against their human rights. You know what I mean? Or their civil rights. So that's, the question that the Supreme Court is going to answer. Should this death penalty have been thrown out? Um, and that one's just in, interesting, both for the, because it's a, 
national like important event that happened and also for especially the the media coverage aspect of like how do we make sure that we have an unbiased jury um, for the accused all right next one november 3rd new york state rifle and pistol association inc v corlette <clears throat> so this one pretty obviously has to do with the second amendment guns rights all right in new york state they passed a law that in order to get an unrestricted license to conceal and carry a weapon, a person has to show a special need for self-defense or protection that's distinguishable from that of the general community. Like they need to show that they're in some sort of special danger that they need to conceal and carry a weapon out in public. Um, so two men challenged the law because their applications for a license to conceal and carry was rejected because they failed to show this heightened need for self-defense for protection. So the question before the court is whether this New York law is unconstitutional, whether it's against the second amendment to require people to show extra need, uh, extra danger in order to conceal and carry in public. Um, so there's specifically, it's a pretty narrow question. It's, uh, it's a case of concealing, carrying a weapon for self-defense outside of the home by someone with no prior criminal record. Once you become, have a criminal past, then there's different, different things come into play. So it's someone who is otherwise law abiding. Can they carry a weapon, conceal and carry in public for self-defense without having to show heightened cause? Is that protected by the second amendment? <clears throat> the second circuit already said no. They've already looked at this law and they said, no, this is not against the second amendment. This law is fine. Um, but again, like I said, the Supreme court usually takes cases like this because circuits are split. Um, and so it's, it, they're just trying to, to see kind of how the second amendment falls when it comes to public conceal and carry for self-defense. Um, this is the first major guns rights case before the Supreme Court since 2008. And in 2008, they heard District of Columbia v. Heller in which they ruled that the second amendment does guarantee an individual's right to have a weapon in the home for self-defense. So this is, okay, we can have it in the home, but can we carry it out in public, conceal and carry it out in public? Again, if you have a prior criminal record, there's, it's different, but for a person who doesn't, can they conceal and carry in public for self-defense? There have been something like 78 amicus briefs filed, which is a lot. Um, a, a, an amicus brief is basically if uh, it gives an opportunity for a concerned party that's not directly named or involved in the suit to provide the court with input and legal arguments in support of either side or just as a general like background. Um, the court doesn't have to listen to them, but it can provide valuable information for the court. And it's getting so much attention because it's a big deal. If this court finds that the second amendment does protect a citizen's right to conceal and carry a gun in public for self-defense, it would require a number of states to change their laws. So keep an eye out November 3rd for, for that one. I mean, the oral arguments will be November 3rd and then a decision will be forthcoming. You can, I think they're going to be live streaming oral arguments again this year, like they did last year for COVID. So, Oye, that, that website I talked about earlier, would have that information. So, all right, November 3rd. The next one I want to highlight is November 8th. Um, and that is the FBI versus Fazaga. This is an, another one of those 
kind of technical, but also important ones. So in FBI v. Fazaga, um, three Muslim residents of Southern California are suing the FBI because the FBI used a confidential informant to covertly surveil their mosque for 14 months. So the FBI paid someone to pose as a Muslim convert and go to the largest mosque in the, con in the county and then come to them, the FBI, with inside information about what went on with there, what they, what they, what goes on in there, what they talk about, etc. This CI, which is lingo for confidential informant, now you know, CI gathered personal information about hundreds of people at this mosque. So the lawsuit alleges that the FBI did this solely because of the their identity as as a Muslim mosque, their religious identity. Um, like they didn't have any probable cause that any crime was being committed or anything within that church or by the people going to the church. Um, so they're saying that it wasn't warranted and it was just a discriminatory act on the part of the FBI. Um, <clears throat> so when this case first went to trial, the FBI, through the U.S. Attorney General, asked the court to dismiss the discrimination claims um, because of what's known as the state secrets privilege. This privilege, the state secrets privilege, it allows the government to basically force certain evidence to be dismissed or barred, not allowed in court because of national security concerns. So they're saying the things that we were hearing and searching for in, in that mosque, uh, we, we got to just dismiss it all. And because of the, the national or the state secrets privilege, like we don't have to, we don't have to put any, any evidence in, it's all barred. Um, so... There is another case that is actually going to be heard earlier, October 6th, that is also going to be regarding the state secrets privilege. That one is called U.S. v. Zubeda. Um, and that, so it's kind of, so I'm mentioning it because it's grouped in with this. In that case, U.S. v. Zubeda, the Ninth Circuit rejected that the state was protected by the state secret provision and ordered the parties to move forward with that, with a case. That, that case implicates a different statute and involves a Guantanamo Bay detainee suing a member of the CIA for a highly controversial post-9-11 detention and interrogation program. So the questions presented in both cases are narrow, and they're based specifically on the statute that the parties in each case brought their cases under. So in FBI v. Fazaga, the question is whether the state secrets provision applies under Section 1806 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978 also known as FISA. But the rulings will have long-term implications for detainees and for people being surveilled in the name of foreign intelligence gathering, which is why I note it. And again, can oftentimes be communities of color and immigrant communities. So we'll see, we'll see how, that, how that turns out. Okay, the next day, November 9th, we've got U.S. v. Vallejo Madero. So this one pissed me off. I mean, these, a lot of these like can, could piss you off. But th for some reason, this one really, really lit a fire under my butt. So this case has to do with Puerto Rico. If you're unfamiliar with how the heck Puerto Rico is related to the U.S., you're not alone. Um, Puerto Rico is an unincorporated territory of the U.S. But they have an independent constitution, um, meaning like we own you, but you don't get to vote for president <laughs> or like enjoy many of the, under, of the, of the other benefits of statehood. Um, it's like imperialism, inaction, full stop. Do not argue with me in the comments. I am not being a communist. I'm pointing out cold, hard facts. The US owns a territory just for the sake of owning it. Anyway, 
So Puerto Rico is an unincorporated territory of the US. It does not have any representation in Congress, no House representative, no Senator. It does not get to vote for president, even though Puerto Ricans are legally US citizens. So this lawsuit is about the Supplemental Security Income Program, which was established in 1972. 1972, we're fighting over a law written in 1972. This program provides monetary assistance to people over 65 who have a disability. Basically, it's like social security income. It's supplemental income to help them cover their expenses. However, the program extends only to residents of the 50 states and of the District of Columbia and to the Northern Mariana Islands, but not to Puerto Rico. The Northern Mariana Islands is a territory I didn't know we had, if I'm being honest. It like it sounded familiar, but I have no clue about the Northern Mariana Islands. Apparently, they are also an unincorporated territory, but for some reason, because of wars and negotiations and power grabs, etc., etc., they do have representation. They have one senator. No representatives, one senator. That's the only difference I can tell in their status compared to Puerto Rico. But that's probably how they got included under this law because uh, they have a Senate representative. It's almost like representation in a democratic government matters or something. Anyway, so Vallejo Madero is a man who was denied supplemental security income because he was born in Puerto Rico. He's a US citizen, but he's a Puerto Rican, so it doesn't count. So the question before the Supreme Court is whether it is a violation of the Fifth Amendment's equal protection provision of the Due Process Clause to exclude Puerto Rico from this law. A reminder that the Fifth Amendment Due Process Clause requires that no one shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And courts have interpreted this to guarantee equal protection under the laws, uh, meaning that a law cannot discriminate against an insular minority. So Vallejo Madero is presenting, frankly, what I find to be a pretty convincing argument uh, that Puerto Ricans are a politically powerless insular minority based on their current status uh, with regards to the U.S. government, and that this law discriminates against them, and so it should be held to the highest level of scrutiny, meaning that the, the court should look at it and see whether there is an actual reason, justifiable reason, why they've excluded Puerto Rico from this law, which pretty much impossible to overcome that standard. But they're also arguing... Even if, even if it, they aren't a spe specially protected minority, there is still just absolutely no justifiable reason why Puerto Rico was excluded from this law. Why someone from Puerto Rico can't get supplemental income if they're over 65 and disabled, just like anyone else in the U.S. could, if they're in the 50 states, the D.C., or the Northern Mariana Islands. We'll see if the Supreme Court agrees. So that's United States v. Vallejo Madero. Next one. November 30th, we're looking at Cummings v. Premier Rehab Keller, which is a rehab center that I find that to be a very confusing name for a rehab center, but it is. Okay, so Jane Cummings, the plaintiff, she is deaf and blind and went to the defendant's physical therapy office for treatment for her back pain. She requested an ASL interpreter, as one might if you cannot hear or see. The defendant refused and said that she could communicate via written notes with her practitioner or get her own interpreter. Um, she then went to a different physical therapist and was treated, but she claims the treatment was inferior. So she's suing under the Americans with Disabilities Act, which prohibits against discrimination, but she's only claiming emotional distress. She's not claiming any other specific injuries, medical expenses, lost wages, blah, blah, blah. No, she's just saying that her injury was emotional distress because she was discriminated against. Um, 
lower courts dismissed this, saying that, um, saying that there had to be cognizable injuries. So the question is whether this, and it's a rather broad question. It's not just about the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. It's a question of whether the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is the act that led to the Americans with Disabilities Act, but also protects all sorts of other discrimination, protects against all sorts of other discrimination. Um, they're asking whether the Civil Rights Act of 1964, whether someone can sue under that and receive damages for de emotional distress alone. So just saying like, I was emotionally harmed. I didn't suffer physically. I didn't suffer lost wages or lost opportunities. I literally just have emotional distress from this. Whether the Civil Rights Act of 1964 would offer a remedy just for emotional distress. And I highlight this because again, it's a, bro it's a broad question about the Civil Rights Act, not just Americans with Disabilities Acts, which could implicate other types of discrimination, like racial and gender-based discrimination, which if you have ever experienced those, do come with a lot of emotional distress. So it could, has the potential to open the door for other people or for people to be able to have a remedy when there isn't a cognizable physical injury or loss of wages or money of some sort. So it could have larger ramifications. Maybe I'm being cynical. I feel like they're not gonna allow it, but I'm, I'm prepared to be proven wrong. All right. Okay, December 1st, this one's getting a lot of attention. Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Org. This is the big abortion one. There's that other one that I started with, but this is the big one that could have larger implications. Okay. <clears throat> this is about a law passed in Mississippi back in 2018. It's called the Gestational Age Act, and it prohibits abortions, with a few exceptions for medical emergencies, after 15 weeks. This is currently unconstitutional under Roe v. Wade because un under Roe v. Wade, people have the protection, the right to seek an abortion prior to viability, and viability has always been, been determined to be around 22 to 24 weeks, all right? In this case, it was they challenged um, this Mississippi law. The district court granted an emergency temporary restraining order, which banned the law from being enforced in Mississippi. And then they ruled in favor of Jackson's women ha Women's Health Org, the, the abortion provider. Um, they're actually the only abortion provider in Mississippi. And the court said that the state didn't prove that there was fetal viability at 15 weeks. And the Supreme Court president clearly protects all abortions up to pre like up to viability, which again, 22 to 24 weeks. So the central question for the Supreme Court now to answer is whether barring abortions um, after 15 weeks is unconstitutional, which gives them the perfect opportunity to overturn Roe v. Wade and say that the protection it created for pre-viability abortions no longer stands. And it could say any ban of abortions at earlier than 15 weeks is unconstitutional, or it could say that the pre-viability rule is overruled entirely, and they could set a new rule, or they could say <clears throat> pre-viability, not, not a law anymore. It's not even our place to be making these types of rules because we're a court, we are not the legislature. So they're gonna say, Roe v, I'm not, this is not a 100% prediction, but they could say Roe v. Wade, no longer standing, uh, pre-viability, no longer a rule. We leave it to Congress to figure out the abortion issue, but we weren't in the right to have ever made that rule to begin with. Or they could say 15 weeks is the new bar. Anything that bans abortions after 15 weeks is fine. 
or they could say that the Mississippi law is completely unconstitutional. So it could really go, it could go anyway, but like, this is a conservative court. So it feels a little scary. And I'm not trying to be a fear monger here. I'm just trying to show you the potential outcomes of this case. All right. So obviously this would be a huge win for anti-choice people who have been clamoring about pre-viability and that rule for decades. And of course there are arguments about when the soul enters the fetal body, you know? But in Roe v. Wade, I made a whole video about it. Check it out after this. In Roe v. Wade, the court says, we are not the people to determine <clears throat> when life begins because scholars, theologians, philosophers, they haven't figured out figured it out. So who are we to say? We're just saying that medically speaking, a fetus can survive generally 22 to 24 weeks after conception outside of the mother's womb. Therefore, that is when the state's interest in protecting a fetus begins. Because before that, like the, the life of the fetus is like, they can't survive outside of the womb. So the mother's life is, is you know, important and she needs to talk about it with her doctor. <clears throat> the state can't intervene. So they've been, they've been clamoring about this for, for, for years. <clears throat> I'm gonna be honest, I, have, I, I find it hard to imagine that this court, having decided to hear this case at all, because again, they didn't have to, they didn't have to tackle the abortion issue, but they decided to. I have a hard time <clears throat> believing that they're gonna fully uphold Roe v. Wade and all of its precedent. It would also be bonkers if they fully did away with Roe v. Wade. I think that would also be insane. But <clears throat> my non-expert prediction is that they'll make some ruling that won't completely rock the boat, but will further chip away at Roe v. Wade. So maybe they'll say 15 weeks and later you can ban abortions and it'll just, it'll just move it forward seven to 10 to nine weeks earlier that, that abortions can be banned. I don't know. Point being, men need to start getting vasectomies. I said it. Chop, chop. Let's go. All right. Oh, moving on. <coughs> Sorry. It is fall and my allergies have been just horrible. I sound just as bad as my dog right now. Okay. <coughs> Next, TBD. This one has not been scheduled yet for oral argument, but they will at some point. This is the American Medical Association v. Cochrane. So this case has to do with Title 10 of the Public Health Services Act. So Trump, back when he was president, he created a rule, or his administration did, under Title 10 that said that no Title 10 money could fund any program. Oh, this is another abortion one, by the way. He said that no Title 10 money could fund, so this is federal money, could fund any program that gives abortion-related counseling or referrals as a form of family planning or if they do give abortion referrals, then they also have to give referrals to clinics that don't perform abortions, just like needlessly. Like, oh, you want to know about abortion providers? Well, here's a list of everyone. Good luck guessing which one provides abortions because I have to give you both ones that do and ones that don't. <clears throat> so in case you're unfamiliar, Title 10 of the Public Health Services Act is the family planning program in which the federal government gives out grants for family planning services to various orgs. So Trump made it so that these family planning orgs, think like Planned Parenthood, could not get funding if they gave abortion counseling or referrals. Not performed abortion, but gave counseling or referred people to abortion providers. 
<clears throat> so after Trump made this rule, a number of orgs and states challenged the rule and three different district courts granted preliminary injunctions. However, as of right now, this, this rule is only suspended in Maryland. It's in force everywhere else. And about a fourth of all sites receiving that funding pulled out of the program because of this rule, because they knew they just weren't going to get funding because they're giving counseling related to abortion as a part of their family planning um, services. <clears throat> so in this lawsuit, they're not challenging the constitutionality of the law per se, because this was an administrative body that passed the regulation. So it's not, it wasn't a state law or a federal law. It was an administrative body saying that we're no longer providing funding if you do X, Y, and Z, if you give abortion counseling. So they're saying that it violates the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, this is a whole mess of weeds. Admin law, it's messy. We're not going to get into it very deeply. But basically, when an administrative body makes a ruling like this, it cannot be arbitrary and capricious. Those, those are the court's words. That's the, that's the bar. That's the, the rule. Can't be arbitrary and capricious. I'll let you look up the definition of capricious, but you could argue that this would, this would be arbitrary and capricious um, because the Constitution protects access to abortion, at least as of now. They didn't bar orgs from organizations from giving abortion counseling referrals up till now. They've been allowing it this whole time. And abortion is a valid form of family planning that is constitutionally protected. Also, it interferes with the patient-doctor relationship, and it dictates what doctors can and can't say to patients. It's saying you cannot tell patients about abortion services, and if you do, you have to also tell them about non-abortion providing provider options. Um, so they're saying it's, it's interfering with that that um, patient-doctor relationship. Therefore, it's arbitrary and capricious. Therefore, they overstepped their bounds. It was against administrative law procedure for them to have made this ruling at all. So they're seeking to have it overruled. Um, the court is going to determine whether the law can stand, which will impact funding for family planning clinics who also do other things besides referrals for abortions, like routine physicals, they prescribe birth control, they help with like cancer screening, etc. across the country. So if it stands, I mean, uh, as of right now, a fourth of all sites receiving that funding have pulled out, so they're not getting that funding anymore. And if it stands, who knows how many more might have to have to go under or find other sources of funding without this, the federal funding. Um, all right. And then last but not least, all right, another TBD. They have not scheduled when oral arguments will happen, but this one is the Department of Homeland Security versus New York. So in 2019, the Department of Homeland Security issued an administrative rule. Yes, we are talking about admin law again. It controls everything, all right? I've gone into it in more detail in other videos. I'll see if I can find it and link it after this live stream, but administrative law, it's, it's like the fourth branch of government, basically. It controls a lot of stuff. So the Department of Homeland Security, it's a department as part of the federal government. They issued a rule stating that they planned to bar non-citizens from receiving green cards if they are dependent on what are more social services, like in income support, SNAP, food stamps, etc. Now, it is a long-standing rule that immigrants who are primarily dependent on public assistance can't receive a green card, in case you didn't know that. However, the new rule that they've just suggested, it would require immigration judges to make the determination 
as to whether five years into the future, whether or not the immigrant may become dependent on public assistance at some point in the next five years. So it's not saying, is, are, is the person currently dependent? It's saying, make a prediction, admin law judge. Will they be in five years, in, within the next five years? And if so, no green card. Even if they're not currently, but maybe in the future they might be. Okay, so tons of organizations and states have sued, saying that this violates, again, the Administrative Procedure Act, because again, it can't be arbitrary and capricious, and they're saying this is completely arbitrary and capricious. You're making a judge try to see into the future and make a prediction on someone based on what? And that's the question, based on what? What are they gonna use to determine this? Are they gonna be unbiased about it? How do you even determine that about someone? It just, it's messy. So it currently, there's an, a nationwide injunction against it, so it's not in force at the moment. But it could give administrative judges leeway to look at an immigrant and decide how they probably might act in the next five years, which seems pretty arbitrary and capricious to me. And that's, those are, those are the, ten, the 10 to look for. Um, <clears throat> we'll see. We'll see what happens. So oral arguments are scheduled on those dates. Again, link down below with the full list. Um, but we'll, we'll hear the oral arguments. They should be streamed live somewhere. You can watch them. And um, we'll see how, how they rule. But that's, that's that, people. Them's the breaks. That's the overview. Thank you for watching. Uh, do you have any questions? And if so, now's your time. Um, I do want to give a quick shout out to my Patreon supporters. Yes, I have a Patreon. We, I give behind the scenes information. We talk about like my house and stuff. I do private live streams. Um, like we have a discord channel where we just are chatting all the time. It's a real fun community. So if you want to join, check out my Patreon link below. Um, thank you specifically to these patrons, Luna LeBlue, Jess Jitsu, Monica Banach, Kyle Everett, and Nick Solace. So thank you so much for your support. And then as always, thank you to my multi-platinum patrons, Brett Piantek and Anonymous, you know who you are. Thank you so, so much for your support. Any questions at all? <clears throat> this is not a question. Jesus, take the wheel. Speaking as a permanent resident of another country, this is crazy. Yes. Thank you so much for your super chat. Dying to know where you got your glasses. Warby Parker. <clears throat> Warby Parker. And they're like uh, a little magnified because I'm a little old and they're uh, blue light blocking. So it um, doesn't, doesn't hurt my eyes to be staring at all these lights and cameras. Let's see. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to get into anti-abortion vitriol in these comment sections. All right. It is a constitutionally protected right under Roe v. Wade, period. If you don't like it, your wishes might be granted soon. <laughs> oh God. I'm not seeing many questions. Just Jitsu, hello. Thank you for your support. Uh, corn harvest. <sighs> that must be it. I have been just <clears throat> a mess. Uh. 
All right, I see we're having, I see we're having a, a bit of a back and forth in the comments here. I'm so tired. So tired. You know, that's a great question. So Biden could just change the Title X ruling if he wants to, but he hasn't. I'm not sure if I'm being honest. You'd no, I don't think Biden on his own could because it was an, an administrative body that ultimately made the ruling. They were just under the Trump administration when it happened is I think how it works. Um, so no, but I think that the administrative law body could change the rule. So that's a great question. It's something that I wondered as well. You'd think they'd be like, mm, we take it back. Never mind, but maybe the same people are still working there even though it's under Biden now. Thank you so much for the super chats. Um, oh my gosh, 1 a.m. Thank you for being here. Uh, yeah, I agree. They're also unsettling. Again, just everyone get a vasectomy, please, and thanks. Um, thank you, Kyle, for your support. How is it that there's even this much room for interpretation in the law that nonpartisan judges can really just overrule obvious existing law? Well... Um, depends on the, the level of the judicial body because there is precedent, but if you are at the same level as the, the existing precedent, you can overrule yourself. Um, and the, the Supreme Court can overrule itself or circuit courts can overrule lower courts. Supreme Court can overrule courts below it. So the Supreme Court can overrule itself. So even if it's existing, but technically speaking, the circuit courts have to follow what the Supreme Court has said. But sometimes there's just little nuances and things that like one court could rule kind of either way. And then it comes to the Supreme Court to make a final decision. Oh, fascinating. Is there anything protecting vasectomies? I saw eight states that mandate free vasectomies for state funded healthcare. That's amazing. I don't know if anyone knows. Please share it with the class because <laughs> that would be some great information. Um, will vasectomies be next? I doubt it because it's about men's bodies. People don't want to control those. You know what I mean? Let's see. Ah. Do you think Supreme Court judges should have a term limitation of a certain amount of years? I mean, that's what a lot of people are arguing, and I think it makes sense to me, because why, why, <laughs> why should we allow one president to put into power some judges who are in their 40s and 50s and could be on that court for 30 to 40 years? Doesn't that feel, I mean, they're not given a pow power like a king might, but it feels like antithesis to what our founding fathers might have wanted, um, given the fact that they didn't like kings and monarchies and people to be in power for decades with no oversight, because when the Constitution was written and no term limits were written into it for Supreme Court justices, people were living till like 40, so it wasn't even a thing that they thought about. <laughs> so um, definitely a thing maybe worth revisiting that a lot of people are arguing in favor of. Thank you so much. We are team Moira, team doggy underpants. Thank you for your support. Uh, man. Yeah. Bye Greg in Houston. See you never. All right. Um, 
Can you go over what circuits are again? Honestly, yeah, totally fine. Like this is all stuff that like people talk about it as though it's just really common knowledge. And some people don't know if you don't have any background, like one of my first things that I learned about in law school was like, let's talk about like the, the layers of government and the courts and stuff. So like, it's a valid thing to not, to not know. Um, so you've got district. So if we're talking federally, so you've got federal and state courts, two separate things. Federally, at least you have district courts. So every state is divided by district. Um, so there's the district of Minnesota, there's the district and then, but then some bigger states have multiple districts. So there's like the Southern district of New York, the Eastern district of New York. Um, and then there's like the Southern district of California, the central district of California. So states are divided up. The whole country is divided into districts. And then those districts all fit within their own circuits. So the district is level one. You're going to sue someone you sue at the district court level. If something happens that you don't like and you want to appeal it, you peel it up to the to the circuit courts, sorry, to the circuit courts, a so district circuit. And then the circuits encompass certain states. So the first circuit is like the Northeast, like Maine, Massachusetts, up there. The second circuit includes New York. Um, but then it gets a little confusing. Like the 11th circuit includes Florida. And then the seventh circuit includes Illinois, but then the eighth circuit includes Minnesota. If you just Google like US circuit court map, they'll show you the breakdown. But so they're the level above district courts. And then the level above the circuit court is the Supreme Court. So everything appealed from the district court goes to the circuit courts and then up to the Supreme Court, typically. I hope that, I hope that helped. Um, thank you so much for your support. Um, really appreciated it. Let's see. I know. I mean, listen, sorry, I'm reading this one. It keeps me up at night thinking about what could have been done if RBG had retired during Obama's first term. Right. But also people loved RBG. So like we probably wouldn't have wanted her to, but it also, yes, in hindsight would have made more sense because then, cause she was old as dirt, even when Obama was president. So This is an interesting question, Nick. Why do you think the U.S. is so different with our stance on certain abortion, certain things like abortion rights and such? It seems like all other countries are more supportive than us. Certainly not all other countries, but a lot of Western countries, for sure. Um, I, my theory on this, in part, is this like really intense individualism we have in this country that is different than from most other countries. We have this like insane need to like pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, everyone for themselves. Like we do not need community. We don't need to work together. We need to, we need to like put ourselves and our family first and no one else matters. So it creates this like extreme lack of empathy I'm seeing at least and an inability to even consider how someone might be affected by a law if it's not you or your immediate family. It's the same thing with like COVID-19. We're seeing anti-vaxxers who are just like, it's my right, it's my body. And they have no concept of like, oh, I could infect other people. Oh, people are dying. There are people who might need me to be thoughtful about how I'm protecting. No, it's my body, period. It's very individualistic. It's very, and then it's not until they then get sick and are dying of COVID that they're finally like, it's real and we need to protect each other. Yeah. 
try empathy before you're on your deathbed. You know what I mean? Sorry, I'm getting worked up, but I think a lot of it has to do with this extreme individualism and this inability to think like, what protections could someone who's not me might need? How, how might this law affect other people? How, how can we help the people who aren't able to lift themselves up by their bootstraps for whatever reason? You know, a lot of countries are not like that. It is a very specifically US thing that if you leave the country is really creepy when you try to go back, you know? Um, thank you so much for your support. Means the most to me. Um, and with that, <laughs> I'm just looking back to make sure I get this. Okay. How do you stop from feeling helpless seeing the entire way the American government slash court system works being abused and failing? Feels like we need a brand new one. I know it's partially it's numbness at this point. Partially it's like, I've seen enough. I can't, I can't feel it. I can't feel it to the full extent at this point, which I know is a little bleak to say, but partially it's numbness. Partially, um, I have to, okay, as much as I just went on a whole diatribe about individualism and how it can be bad, there is something to be said for focusing inward on your own community, the people around you, the people in your city, in your neighborhood, in your friend group, whatever, and trying to make positive change there when it feels like on a national level, things are a dumpster fire. So I try to focus inward on like, what am I doing today to make me feel like I'm helping in some way? And in part, like these live streams are that for me. It's hopefully someone gets something out of this. And I know that I am coming at it from a biased perspective. I have never said or claimed that I am not biased, but I am trying to put information out there and then give my opinion on it, but put the information out there to help people to know more about the way that the system works and a hope that people will be empowered by that knowledge and can go off and do their own change in their own community. So I do that to feel like I'm doing something good or I check in with my friends or I give back in like mutual aid ways. Like someone needs some help in my community. Here you go, I'm helping you. So that's one way that I try to stay sane. Um, when everything feels like insane and bad. So like, I'm not saying I'm gonna break the law, but if abortion becomes illegal in this country, like there are ways to push back on that in a smaller community-based way that like, I know people back in the 60s and 70s were banding together and doing before Roe v. Wade, and we're just gonna have to go back to that. And that's kind of what I focus on is bleak as that is. Thank you so much for your support, right? Give it a try. <laughs> Hello, thank you for your support. Have I heard of that? I haven't, but that could be fun. Maybe I'll look it up. All right. Um, this one is, I'll end on this. It's like, come to America to live the American dream, yet we can come off super, super selfish. Yes, I think the American dream I'll end on this diatribe that I have as well. The American dream obviously is a lie for the majority of people who are actually coming here as immigrants. However, um, the American dream is, has like kind of had us brainwashed in that Americans on the whole, we believe that we are one good decision away from becoming an, a millionaire, the Jeff Bezos of the world. 
uh, another Jeff Bezos or like another Elon Musk or at the very least another millionaire. Like we think we're one good decision away from becoming millionaires when the reality is that we're like one or two bad situations away from homelessness. But we self-identify with millionaires far sooner than we will ever self-identify with someone who's homeless on the streets because we think that like it's, it's available to all of us, but we'll never will never fall victim to capitalism. And those people are others and they're lazy and they just, they made bad decisions and it was their fault that they got there. We don't have, we don't seem to have the ability to realize that like one or two missed paychecks and a lot of us, a lot of us would be there as well if we haven't already been there at some point in our lives. So empathy, empathy and a little reality. That's all I ask for. All right, I'm going to end it on that. Thank you so much for your support. This has been a uh, fun back and forth. Um, I'm sorry about some of the the vitriol in the, in the chat, but um, I think you guys held your own. I am gonna go. Thank you so much for your support. Moira, passed out. Doing great. Oh, good girl. Um, yeah. I'm gonna end it. Thank you so much for, for your support and I hope you guys have an excellent week. Thank you for listening to the Real Life Law Podcast. As a reminder, I stream live over on my YouTube every Monday and Friday at 9 a.m. Central and then I turn it into podcast audio for you because I get that you're a busy person on the go. If you found this podcast informational or entertaining, please consider leaving a review. Every review helps this podcast grow and is greatly appreciated. Thanks so much for listening. Bye bye